You're listening to the Colorado Springs Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by RICO, your local guide for all things real estate investing in Colorado. Hey, everyone. This is Jenny Bayless, and I'm here with Chris Lopez today. Chris, how are you doing? Doing great. I am looking forward to talking about some cost segregation. Me too. So just a a quick intro to our guest. I'm very excited to have her on today. Um, Bonnie Griffin Cake. We met at a Bigger Pockets meetup uh, a few months ago, and she wowed me with her uh, cost segregation knowledge. She works uh, for cost segregation services. Um, And Bonnie, if you could, could you give a little bit about your your background in real estate and then how how you transitioned to uh, being a cost seg expert? Sure, sure can. Um, I was um, a commercial real estate broker and um, licensed, but I'm currently inactive. I don't compete with real estate brokers at this time um, because a lot of them learn about cost segregation through me and uh, will send me people that need some extra cash flow. Um, I also have invested in commercial real estate, have a a couple of um, residential rentals, um, over the years. And, uh, now I, I have stopped investing, have liquidated a lot of properties and I'm really enjoying helping people understand how they can leverage cost segregation and the other tax benefits that are available to them so they can stop paying so much in taxes. Um, there are just too many benefits out there and, and I see too many leaving money on the table that they could leverage and use elsewhere. Okay. So um, cost segregation, we have training meetings twice a week, um, and we have to go through extensive training uh, prior to even being able to talk about it. So we're usually pretty, pretty good. And I also teach CPE, continuing education classes for CPAs, because I find that uh, maybe one out of 10 really has um, enough background to understand cost segregation. So even the people out there listening to this podcast, don't feel bad if you don't know. Just ask questions. Because um, if I don't have an answer to them for you, I know where to get them. You know, we've been in business a long time, more than any other company. And after doing 35,000 studies, we've probably done it before. <laughs> okay. So you just ask. <laughs> so yeah. So if you could tell us a little bit, I don't know, maybe we should back up and just quickly talk about um, depreciation and how it how it relates to real estate. And then we'll go into defining what a cost segregation study is. So um, could you tell everyone a little bit about um, what depreciation is um, just in terms of, you know, the non-cash expense or phantom expense? Um, you'll hear people, people talk about it. Mm-hmm. Well, um, what what it is, is basically in real estate, you depreciate or CPAs will depreciate the property over 27 and a half or 39 years, depending upon whether it's a residential property or whether it's a uh, commercial, what's considered a commercial property. And when I refer to residential, I'm talking about a single family home, a condo, Uh, multifamily apartment complexes, they all come under the the category of residential with one exception, and that's the short-term rentals. 
but we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, Short-term rentals are a special category and has some little intricacies along with that that are good to know. Um, the last thing we want to do is trigger audit, right? <laughs> I don't Absolutely. like doing auditors uh, <laughs> in the past, and it's not a pleasant experience. <laughs> okay, so um, so cost segregation really is is about taking that twenty seven and a half years or thirty nine years that a CPA will or a tax professional will um, put on straight line depreciation which means that they don't put property in there. You can't depreciate property, the land itself. But you can depreciate that building on straight line over 27 and a half or 39, which means that each year you get 127th or 139th of the depreciation each year that you can take for taxes. Now, with cost segregation, you get to Again, you can't depreciate the land, but you can take that 27 and a half years or 39 years and get the depreciation for the building minus structure right up front. And it usually represents anywhere between 35, or excuse me, 25 and 30 percent of what you paid for that building. That's pretty substantial. And as far as cash flow, depending upon your tax rate, you can probably expect about maybe six to 8% of what you bought that building for in taxes, you don't have to pay the first year right now. That's going to change a little bit drops each year, but we, we can go into that too later if you'd like. Yeah. I think that the concept of depreciation is one that's very powerful, but often overlooked um, by investors. Um, and, you know, just to kind of, um, you know, reinforce that idea a little bit. Like the IRS requires that you take depreciation. It's not an option. Um, so when you sell the property, that could have some implications as well. Um, but then, you know, just the fact that depreciation is kind of the IRS's gimme to an investor saying that your, your property is going to wear down um, over time. And it doesn't matter if your property's 200 years old when you buy it, they pretend that it's going to wear equally from the day you buy it onward. Um, so it's just kind of an interesting little little concept that I, I think is often overlooked, but um, as you're going to show us today is incredibly powerful um, for people's bottom lines. So leading us into what is a cost segregation study. Okay, a cost segregation study... Um, is um, taking the building purchase price minus land, okay? and then we separate that by segregating what is tangible property versus what's structural. The structural property itself has to go the 27 and a half or 39 years. Okay? That, that's ongoing, even if you do cost segregation. But the things that we can expedite that are considered tangible property can be taken right now 100% in the first year through 2022. Okay? Now, if you've bought the property between 2017 and 2022, you're eligible for 100% depreciation that you can get up front. Now, starting in 2023, 
that jets down to 80%, but you still can expedite the rest of it. So it's not a big deal. As a matter of fact, before we got the 100% depreciation, before 2017, it was 50%. And long before that, we had no bonus depreciation. So it's really not a big thing. You still want to do cost segregation because that's going to expedite what you can take as far as tax benefits. Yeah, great. So bonus depreciation, can we step back and um, define that for, for our audience a little bit? Sure. Okay. Bonus is um, taking what is a five-year, seven-year, and 15-years, you know, normal depreciation, you know, with, with expediting it. And we can take all, that, all of that in the first year now. Or next year, we'll be able to take 80% of that in the first year. And the balance would go 5, 7, or 15, and the 27 and a half or 39. And I know it sounds complicated, but it, once you get a handle on it, it it's, a, it's kind of a no-brainer. Um, the American Institute of CPAs and the Journal of Accountancy both recommend cost segregation be done. There are many methods of doing it. But I would say that if you own a property over 250000 get an engineering-based cost segregation study. That is your best chance of eliminating the possibility or greatly reducing the possibility of an audit. Um, in our over 20 years of being in service, we've never triggered an audit and we've never had a study overturned. I don't know of another company that can claim that. But I think that investors need to know that there is so much information out there about cost segregation that may not be in their best interest if they're strictly looking at the cost. So I think it's really important that they do a little research about whatever company or method they're going to use if they really want to save themselves from an IRS audit, especially with these new 87,000 auditors coming on board, even though about 55,000 of those are replacing retiring auditors, the rest of them are really going to start focusing on depreciation schedules, we've been told, because it's low-hanging fruit for the IRS, because so many of them are not being done correctly. So you're referencing an engineering study, and you know, last year, it's first time I personally did a cost segregation study for any of my assets that I own. And I spent some time, you know, learning and debating between doing, there's a lot of like DIY, the do-it-yourself ones, mm-hmm. um, you know, versus an engineering study. And I looked at the DIY, DIY, DIY ones because they're, they're attractive. Hey, they're simple. They're less they expensive. Are. And then I got two minutes into it, asked me a bunch of information. I was like, yeah, I can't handle this. And I was like, <laughs> I don't want to worry about saving, you know, a couple hundred dollars or a thousand or two thousand dollars. Um, and potentially have like a bigger headache with the IRS or screw up a $300,000, you know, depreciation reschedule. So when you're saying like a, a engineering study, you're referring to hiring out a firm like yours versus do like a DIY study, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I yeah. definitely yeah. recommend people always hire professionals, especially for complicated things like this. This is one area I personally feel comfortable on saving a few dollars on. So I mm-hmm. hired professionals. Yes. Yes. Because yeah. those, those few dollars you save 
Um, if you have an auditor sitting in your office for a few <laughs> days or more, um, suddenly that doesn't look like it's so attractive. Um, so I engineering-based study is the IRS's preferred methodology. And that's also why there are so few audits of those studies because an auditor can't do as as deep an uh, analysis of the property as we do with an engineering-based study. And it also requires an engineering-based study have an on-site visit. And it doesn't mean just the outside of the building. Okay, It also is inside and outside because we need to be able to verify the numbers we're coming up with. Because a lot of the percentage of what we get to depreciate upfront is inside. That's tangible property. It's not just the driveway and the trees outside. <laughs> so, um, you know, if we can verify it, you and I, I both would. know that the IRS is not going to go visit the property to audit <laughs> your tax per- tax return. No. Um, and something I'm, I'm curious, I want to I want to clarify this because you said, um, you know, they were they're you know, for an engineering based study. Like when I submit my tax returns. Do they know if it was an engineering study versus a DIY? Or is that once they start the audit and they say, oh, this is a DIY versus engineering? Um, well, our uh, documentation goes to the CPA or mm-hmm. tax professional, and they attach the information on that to the tax filing. And it will also have the name of the company that's doing the cost segregation with it. That's okay. my understanding. Now, I'm not a CPA, but the CPAs feel very comfortable in working with, you know, an engineering-based study um, versus just filing something that's a, a, an online, hey, you know, generic kind of study. So how would you recommend that investors go about determining whether a cost segregation study is worthwhile? So if we're if we're Speaking only about an engineering-based study, for example, um, would you say that there's a certain property uh, price threshold um, or an investor profile that you know does or does not lend itself um, to be cost beneficial in that case? Since um, you know engi- engineering-based studies are not cheap by any means, but um, in in a lot of cases they definitely pay for themselves very quickly. So. But I would would say that an engineering-based study is um, viable on properties starting at around $250,000. A lot of companies will only go starting at $1 million. Um, But but why not the smaller taxpayer as well? Um, You know, taking a look at something that's going to keep them out of an auditor's close-up view of their tax returns. So in in years past, cost-sake studies used to be very expensive. But they have really come down in price because more and more of them are, are actually being done. So um, uh, there are some reasons that you wouldn't want to do a cost segregation study. And those are um, uh, things like uh, you pay no taxes. If you're a nonprofit and you don't pay taxes, a cost segregation study is going to do you no good. So you're all if you're going to sell the property within two years, it's another good reason it's not going to be worth doing the study because the cost of the study, you want to make sure that you start getting a return on that investment in the study 
And that takes about two to three years to get that return and start looking at, um, you know, some profitability, uh, you know, with that study. Um, Also, you can only do a study on property that's occupied. So that's another little tricky spot. If you buy a building that is not occupied, you can't do a cost segregation study until it is occupied or at least listed for rent, uh, you know, whether it's a residential or whether it's a commercial. That doesn't mean somebody has to be in the building. It means that you need to be actively pursuing someone to occupy that building. So what I tell people is if you buy a building and you plan on doing some major renovations, do the cost seg now. Do the major renovations in the year following because you can't take major renovations, expedited depreciation in that first year because the way the IRS looks at it is that that was already bad in the property to begin with. So it's not something that happened during your ownership. It happened prior to, and you bought it that way. Is that what um, the IRS like calls placed in service dates and um, for, for those guidelines right there? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And now placed in service is a little tricky because a lot of people will buy a commercial property and the owner has an agreement with the buyer to stay in that property for a while. Could be a week could be six months. Who knows? They're releasing it back or it's part of their agreement. That means that property is already occupied. But the best tax benefit comes if you do the renovations that you have to do in the first year, especially later in like fourth quarter of the year. Do the, the minor reserva- renovations now. Do the improvements in the year following. Because there's another thing called Um, partial asset disposition, which can be taken advantage of. So if you're doing a cost segregation in one year and we outline, okay, here as an example, here's what those refrigerators and stoves and appliances are worth right now. Next year, you decide you're going to change them out. Well, you've already paid for in the purchase price, the ones you bought the property and it was you know, in that property at that time. The second year, you can actually expense those things off your depreciation schedule when you're replacing it with the new ones. But if you don't know that, then you're going to continue depreciating not only the old ones, but also the new ones over the next 27 and a half years. So, and it's missed so much, but the key here is it must be be done in the year that you do those renovations. So if you wait three years, a lot of people do it. They don't know any better. They say, oh, I, you know, a couple of years ago, I did all these renovations. Sorry, it's too late. Hmm. So I would like to, because you're we're giving a lot of like very good technical stuff. I would like mm-hmm. to, if we could actually like, give an example, just to, like, you know, some, some rough numbers, because when I started learning about cost segregation, bonus depreciation, you know, all of this. It, it took me uh, a few podcast episodes and a few Google searches uh, to really start wrapping my head around it. Mm-hmm. And one thing that's helped me is just kind of getting some like, uh, you know, just some rough numbers. Can you walk us through just like a very high level, you know, rough example of a Colorado property, you know, 500,000 or maybe a million dollar property. Can I walk us through the math of, 
hey, here's normal straight line, 27.5 depreciation versus hey, if we do cost sake and bonus, how that all works out. Yeah, it is different for each property. And that's that's a, a little technicality because a lot of people say, well, gee, how much can I, how much am I going to be able to save on taxes? Or what can I depreciate right up front? And there are so many variables. That's why it's best to get an estimate first. And estimates are free, whether they're done through our company, whether it's done from another engineering-based cost seg company, they don't charge anything to do these. So look at that to determine your specific property. Let me give you an example. Okay. Um, let's see. I had a, um, a condo, $500,000 condo. Here in Colorado, a lot of times the land is not included. But there are other situations where they include land. So that $500,000 property, depending upon where it is, will have a different amount of savings. Some of them up in ski areas, the land itself may be 60% of the value you bought it for. So you don't have that 60% to depreciate. So I can't really say, okay, you're going to get 6% of that $500,000 in cash flow or 8% in cash flow, packages you don't have to pay. Because the land can't be depreciated. On right, I, I get that, but just more from like a conceptual uh, perspective, just because like, you know, I, I understand the nuances for that, but like I, when I did my own, I really understood the numbers of how much at front load depreciation, like it just floored me. I was like, wow, every client out there who qualifies for it, you know, based on properties and, you know, makes sense for their taxes and all that, like, holy smokes, you got to do it. Because I've got the biggest refund check ever in my entire life this year. And it just, it blew my mind. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's say, to give you an example here, let's say that without land, the property is worth 500000 Yeah. Okay. So if we take 30% of that is what we can probably depreciate up front, that's $150,000. Through bonus depreciation, hypothetically. Okay. Mm -hmm. But depending upon your tax rate, it it depends on how much of that you can take. So if we take $150,000 up front in tangible property we can depreciate, let's say your tax rate is, what do we want to say, 30%? Yeah, say 30%. 30%. That means you've got $45,000 worth of taxes you do not have to pay this year. $45,000. That is a lot of money. And comparing, you said $150,000 would be first-year depreciation. If we were to just straight line it, that $500,000 with no land over $27,500, we're talking $18,000. That's so right. that's a pretty significant difference, even when you apply your tax rate to it. Um, and again, these are all just hypothetical numbers, but I think that it shows the difference between um, being able to accelerate versus take the normal um, mm-hmm. depreciation schedule on that. Uh-huh. Yeah. And and can you go into a little bit of an explanation? Um, so Chris, 
uh, you're a real estate professional in the eyes of the IRS, right, Chris? Correct. Yeah. So, so he gets different benefits than someone who's in a W-2 job as a lawyer, for instance. Um, can you explain a little bit about that? Sure. Sure. Um, as a real estate professional, um, you can take the depreciation that you get on one property and you can use that even against a W-2 income. Um, or other income that you have. So it's pretty, pretty lucrative. But that doesn't mean that cost segregation isn't valuable. As a matter of fact, one of the big things that people miss is if it's an owner-occupied building, let's say you're an insurance company and you bought a little building to operate your insurance practice out of. If you don't do what's called grouping, The first year you buy that property, you can't use it as active. But if you group it, in other words, the building and your business have the same owners, then you can actually group that and any big depreciation that we can give you on cost segregation, you can use against your income. Doctors, lawyers. People who operate their practice out of the building, this is key. And I see, I hate to say it, but well over 50% of people don't catch that because tax professionals, that this is not their area of expertise. Real estate is not. They know it, and that's why they use outsourced experts in this area. So as far as a home, It's passive unless you're, like Chris, a real estate professional, which means that the depreciation we can take on that property up front can only be used against the income from that property. It can't be used against your W-2 income or anything else. It's just that property. Unless you own a lot of passive income properties, then you can do what's called aggregating. In other words, they kind of group them together And then you could use losses on one against the income on another. Another thing that I think um, is really important is that short-term rentals are often done incorrectly. And that could be a trigger down the road for the IRS. So if you own a short-term rental, you want to make sure that you, one, one thing, they have to be depreciated over 39 years, not 27 and a half. It's not considered residential. It's a business, like a hotel. Oh, so even if you, like, just say, go buy a single-family home in Arvada, which is a very, mm-hmm. you know, common market for Airbnbs right now, I go buy a $500,000 single home in Arvada, investment property, Airbnb it, uh, I have to depreciate over 39 years, even though it's a residential structure, since yes. it operates an Airbnb, you're saying that now cl- reclassifies it as a commercial property? That's right. Oh, interesting. Yes. And I would say okay. a, lot, a lot of the depreciation schedules that I see are coming in um, with depreciations of 27 and a half years on these, and they should be 39. Well, okay. if I own Airbnbs, I'm sure I would have classed them as 27.5, but I, I don't. Um, but yeah, that is, I had no clue on that. Yeah. I just assumed no matter what it was, what the structure was, 
but I guess it's the use of it as well. That's right. So it's just, it's one of those little nuances that again, if you don't have a professional that understands commercial real estate and the depreciation little intricacies, you can miss that. Well, let me ask you this because I was actually um, at an event. Um, it was a it was a group of medical doctors, and you know, a lot of times, yeah, you know, they're they're high income, busy yes. people, and it's you know not uncommon for like you know one of the spouses is the doctor, and the other spouses, you know, they're they yeah. don't have a as demanding job as the their spouse does in the medical field, but they go out there and they they're the ones actually running their portfolios, running the properties. And they go out there and reach that real estate professional status to help, you know, offset the the medical doctor's W two income. Yes. But one of the um, uh, people I was talking to this weekend filled me in, and I just learned this. And I want your your you to clarify this for me. Saying if it's an Airbnb property, that's a totally different set of like hours and metrics to go out there and qualify that properly. Like it's like a hundred hours. They said it has to be like the most you you have to be the most active person at property. That's right. I know mean, the details. Obviously, you know them. Could you clarify them for me and educate the rest of the audience? Yes. it's Airbnbs are great for people who um, live near the property that's an Airbnb. Because let's say you buy a property in Florida and you live here in Colorado and you make that an Airbnb. I don't think the IRS is going to believe that you're actively participating in that property. Okay. I'm not cleaning it every every three days. Yeah. No, you're not going down there every three days to clean it and get it ready for the next occupant. So therefore, that property <laughs> is is not going to be um an, an active property from the perspective of material participation. Okay. But it is considered a um a 39-year property. That doesn't change. Okay. And um, it will still be um, a passive property unless you're a real estate professional. If you're a real estate professional, then even though you're not participating as much, um, most likely you can still take that as an active property because it's like a hotel. It's a business. Grouping those passive properties is important. Um, grouping probably is not all that important when you're a real estate professional because you're going to designate whether you're active in that property or not each year on your, your schedule. And because you can be active in a property one year and inactive in another. So hopefully that kind of makes sense to you. Um, the other the other issue on a short term rental is that the furniture and furnishings in that property can also depreciate be depreciated right up front. Yeah, that's that's fascinating because we always talk about Airbnbs or businesses when we, when we talk with the clients. I want to you know Airbnbs from cash flow are very very attractive. Oh but they, yeah, they, they do take more management either through the owner or the owner finding and managing a active Airbnb property manager. So I, and I think all these nuances are, are fascinating and really want to highlight, cause we have quite a few investors now in both Springs and Denver. Some actually starting to pueblo now getting into that short term rental market. Now I'm gonna put you on the spot. What about medium term rentals? We have a lot of clients who pivoted towards medium term rentals as laws have changed or they've kind of found the sweet spot. We're like, hey, I can't self-manage Airbnb but they can self-manage a medium-term rental. 
do you know, do medium-term rentals, aka corporate rentals, aka you know, traveling nurse rentals, do those qualify as a business under the same short-term rental laws, or are they long-term rentals or a whole separate category? They're concerned residential rentals if it's 30 days or more. So that's the key. 30 days or more is yes. the distinguishing mark. Okay. Yes. That's and, good because that's how they qualify from a, a statutory standpoint as well for you know local ordinances. So I'm glad that the rules kind of uh, are, are in line there. <laughs> I think that's one of the first few times actually different rules actually match up and make sense. Like, <laughs> yeah. holy moly, government, way to go. <laughs> yeah, and, and the short-term rentals are also considered residential rentals rather than a business. So I don't know, did I say short-term? I meant medium-term, the 30 days or more. Okay, mm-hmm. 30 days or more they're considered depreciated over 27 and a half years, not 39. Mm. So those little nuances are important when you're doing your taxes to make sure you've got the right professional working with you that understands these little differences to keep you out of trouble down the road. Absolutely. Cause I think, I think it's key to not only pick the right engineering based study company to uh, you know, substantiate the report that's being produced. But then the actual application of the report is a whole other layer that it's very important to have, you know, your CPA on your side and and bringing the two together to figure out what is allowable and the most advantageous for that particular investor. Because I think something that we've just talked about during this this conversation is there are so many different nuances, so many different nuances within the properties themselves, but then also that particular investor's personal situation or, um, you know, work situation that could, could alter things as well. So, um, you know, just because it's really beneficial for Chris to be able to do a cost seg study based on him being, you know, real estate professional status. Um, his wife has active W2 income. There's a lot of benefits being at play there. It might not be advantageous for someone who is not a real estate professional. So I think that is just really important to kind of understand uh, those before you go down this path. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to the passive versus active. Mm-hmm. You know, Something I, I totally agree with there. And, um, you know, since I did my cost six days last year, I, have a, I put out like a, a small template and kind of did a couple like tables just showing some of the breakdown. That's, you know, it was for me to understand the numbers. And I was like, oh, other people mm-hmm. the same information. Let me copy paste it to, you know, prospective clients. And one of the big questions I've gotten, and I had this myself, was, well, if I take all this depreciation, you know, that would be straight lined over, you know, 27 and a half years and front load it, am I going to shoot myself in the foot, you know, down the road? And I don't have my numbers in front of me, but like the 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 difference between like, you know, after that first year where you get that massive loss, the massive phantom loss, and the difference between like year two, three, year 27 on a non-depreciation or a non-cost sake schedule or they cost sake schedule. And since you front load it, it does remove depreciation from the future. It was so minimal. I mean, a lot of times it was like two or $3,000. You're going like $18,000 your example to $15,000 a year. Uh, and I was, and as I ran the numbers, I was like, wow, in year 10, I don't really care about a $3,000 difference or especially in year 20. Cause it's, you know, it's a future dollar. And we all know future dollars worth less than today. 
Plus, I'm like, there's a good chance I won't own the property anymore either. So I found that fascinating. And I was really pleasantly surprised with what small impact that had on just even that long-term depreciation too. Because even still after I get that big front load, the next year I still want a lot of depreciation to help me lower my tax basis. And it was a very, very marginal difference in my experience. Is mm-hmm. that common across, I mean, you've done way more than I have. Is that a common theme yeah. across uh, cost and depreci- uh, bonus depreciation? Yes. And when, when I do um, an estimate, I also include what it's going to look like down the road. So you can see how that amount of depreciation is. There's still depreciation there ongoing because the structure of the building is going to depreciate over the 27 and a half or 30, 39 years, even if you take this bonus depreciation up front. So there's still depreciation. But you know, I want to say one thing that I think is really important here. And, and a, a quote that I absolutely love was done by Robert Kiyosaki. And he said, the most important word in the world of money is cash flow. The second most important word is leverage. That's what you're doing with cost segregation. Because if you invest the money that you're not paying in taxes, that first year that you get it in bonus depreciation, you reinvest that, even if you're a business or whether you're investing in real estate, you can usually expect about 8% appreciation a year. Right? Now, what you experienced, Chris? Did you say about 8%? Uh-huh. That's a little higher than we underwrite, but. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, um, you know, with the, um, in Colorado, we've seen appreciation on properties. Oh, you know? I'm sorry. You said appreciation. I thought you said appreciation. I, I, I was like, oh, I haven't done that mental math. Oh, appreciation. No, okay. Appreciation. If I said otherwise, I'm sorry. No, um, I think that was just, I'm in depreciation <laughs> mindset. And those two okay. words are too similar. Yeah. <laughs> so you can expect about 8% appreciation you know, on what you're getting up front because our, our tax rates are going up. You can use that money now. It's worth more than down the road. So leverage it by reinvesting it in something, whether it's a, a business that's not W-2, like the doctor's wife, who can do that, you know, put it, put it in another property. Uh, why not? I mean, you're going to get more. You leave it, let it set with the Treasury Department. They're not giving you interest on that. Mm-mm. No. Yeah, that's that is uh, you know that's my strategy theory right now. I'm not executed yet because I just got my taxes finalized a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. But you know, hey, if you can take a lot of that refund you get, reinvest it. You know, it's not quite enough to cover another down payment, especially now in the higher interest rate environment. Sure. But man, you know, it covers a significant part of, you know, a, a down payment or some other investment. And if you can kind of keep that flywheel going to, to use it to leverage up again and then buy another asset to help create more, you know, bonus and costing depreciation, like I have the numbers, but like mentally, that's an awesome flywheel. It really is. Uh, you know, and so, you know, oh, uh, you know, another thing I want to mention before I forget it is a lot of your investors on bigger pockets are smaller investors are getting started, right? Yep. And I've seen some of them that say, well, you know, I'm I'm living in the basement. Remember, I just got one of these recently. The basement is X number of square feet. But the rest of the house, I'm leasing 
long term. And then I'm going to sell that and flip it. Can I still do cost seg on that? The answer is yes. Hmm. Because the percentage you are living in is removed because you can't depreciate that. But the rest of the house can be depreciated. If it's a short-term rental, the rest of that house can be done on the 39 years depreciation. Okay. If it's a um, uh, a long-term rental, so 30 days or more, which most of them are, okay, then you've got 27 and a half years of depreciation. Both of those can be expedited with cost segregation up front the first year. That gives you more money than to be able to invest in the next property and maybe move out of your basement <laughs> and get a different place. So there are a lot of little things that people are not aware of that can help them get to that next property investment. Yeah. Even if they're just starting out. And that's why, like, um, you know, as we start wrapping this podcast and always trying to give like actionable items to our listeners, like, I mean, I was able to follow with everything that you explained today. Um, I think it's because I've been, you know, learning about this last probably three years now. I really started studying it. Like I said, it took me a while to understand it. So I expect a lot of our listeners out there, uh, they grasp the concept, probably hazy on quite a few details, which sure. is normal and fine. But what I did, I mean, I recommend this to everyone. You can correct me wrong. Is like, hey, if you if you have a property, you like the idea, don't go into like deep analysis mode. Go reach out to you. Go get a free estimate. Go circle around their tax professional. Understand what impact it may or may not have on their taxes and all the ancillary stuff. And I think those two steps probably is like the best action steps that I recommend to my clients as I talk to them. I'm curious, like what you'd recommend to investors out there. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Learn about that too. I mean, obviously they're looking at, you know, what is the price of the property? What do the numbers look like? But too many of them forget to look at, okay, what about other benefits that I have with investing in this property? And um, it can really make a big difference in how fast you can grow your business. Cool. Bonnie, I, so, I wanted to ask a oh, Chris, do you mind if I ask a kind of a yeah. semi we can end the you know the the barrage of questions on a complicated question if that's okay. So in Chris's example before, he he mentioned the the front loading of the depreciation, the accelerated depreciation. Say he he does sell in year 10. And he doesn't want to pay depreciation recapture, so he does a 1031 to defer those uh, uh, capital gains. What happens then? Um, can he then 1031, or can he cost seg his property that he 1031s into? Can you can you give a little bit of an example on that? Sure. Um, let me try to make this quick. <laughs> it's, there's a little complexity to 1031s. Um, there, there, there are two aspects. One is the relinquished property if you've done a lot of repairs on that relinquished property, you want to do what's called a depreciation schedule scrubbing. A lot of the things that you did now can be expensed rather than capitalized. So you want to get those off that depreciation schedule for the old property, the relinquished property, before you do that 1031 exchange, because then it'll lower the basis going into the new property. Now, you can do a cost segregation 
on the new property on the 1031, as well as even if you've done it on the previous property. It's just that you want to make sure the difference between what you're selling the old property for and what you're buying the new property for, the new basis is significant enough difference so that you can take cost segregation again. So you can do it the next time around. It's just that we can't segregate a property or the amount that you you, um, deferred from the relinquished property the second time. We can only depreciate the difference between that and what you bought the new property for. And I know that's a little bit complicated, but but I can answer those individually if someone has a question. Um, our consulting is free of charge uh, because we want yeah. you to be educated. Okay? There's another aspect of this, and I think, Jenny, you mentioned this earlier. Um, if you are in your later years in life, I have a few gray hairs, but not there yet. <laughs> okay. Um, if you are willing your property, you're not going to sell it. You're going to will it to your children. Okay. Do cost segregation now because you can take that money, reinvest it wherever you want. You can pay for your kids, edu- grandkids education. You can, you know, whatever you want to do that. Take a trip. Use it now. When you die, that property is transferred to your heirs at the current market value, which means your heirs can do a cost segregation as well. So there's a benefit there. So just because you're going to will it to your kids does not mean you shouldn't do a cost seg. Actually, you should because there's no recapture. No recapture at all if you will it. I think that piece alone is just phenomenal. Um, yeah, that that's pretty incredible piece of information. <laughs> oh yeah, I think it's I think it's great. So, Bonnie, how can people reach out to you to either you know have a consultation and or get a free estimate on their portfolio or a property they own? Um, they can email me at Bonnie B O N N I E G as in girl K as in kilo at cost segregation services.com or for your podcasters i would even love getting a call on my cell phone is perfectly fine uh, my cell is 303 or 4459 if i don't answer i'm probably on a call with somebody else or on an appointment but you can also leave me a message either there or on my office line at 720-504-5776. Fantastic. And we'll make sure all those, uh, the email and the phone numbers in the show notes as well, since a lot of times people are driving. Everyone uh, reach out or check the show notes so you can reach out to Bonnie. For some reason, you have trouble finding them, reach out to me or Jenny. We are happy to connect you as well. But Bonnie, this is fantastic. Thank you. You obviously are an expert in this field. I learned a couple new things today, which is always one of my goals on the podcast. You know, let's get to interview experts. I want to walk away with one nugget. I got a few nuggets as well. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I highly encourage all of our investors out there to get very familiar with depreciation in general. It's a very powerful wealth building tool. And then start layering on and understanding the cost segregations, the bonus depreciation, accelerated depreciation, the real estate professional status. 
understand that because as your investing career evolves or as you buy different types of properties or asset classes, you can see there's a lot of nuances on there, but there's oftentimes ways and go out there and use depreciation and create a lot of cash flow today, which just helps accelerate the flywheel for more wealth creation as you reinvest the money. So love the topic, love your expertise. Thank you so much, Bonnie. Thank you. Thanks, Bonnie. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.